You know, perhaps the candle, which is illustrative only, uh, we don't believe their prayers or anything, or the object of our faith, but maybe it is to bring to our mind the supernatural darkness that came over the world when the light of the world was extinguished only for a short time before he rose from the dead. Really, isn't that why Christ was born anyway? The light of the world came into our darkness and really illuminated truth to us through his grace. Uh, Welcome this morning. Good to see you. Missed you last week. Um, Our family came down with a pretty strong stomach virus that cleared early in the week. You don't have to treat us like lepers after the service. Um, but it was, a, it was a difficult week. We missed our special Christmas service. Thank you for praying for us. Some of you thought we were traveling. Others thought we were somewhere else, but we're back. And we didn't go anywhere, unfortunately. We were at home quite sick. So good to see each of you and welcome. Welcome our guests. Uh, I think I saw Kristen first. Good to have Matt and Kristen with us. Um, Matt uh, and Kristen traveled out here. Uh, Matt's grandfather passed away, so they were here for the funeral as well as many other friends and family and your friends, and I got to meet several of them at the door. Welcome. It is great to have you this morning. Uh, I'm going to ask you to open your scriptures to the first gospel account, which is Matthew's gospel. Last week was our Christmas emphasis. There was a lot of music. Uh, There were musical testimonies, beautiful singing. Thankfully, I was able to, to be at the practice on Saturday. I got my own personal sort of viewing since we were not here, but I heard it went very well. Today is more of a normal service, though it's never normal, when we are pointing people to the truth that is in Jesus Christ. Two of the four Gospels, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, two of those only record the birth account of Jesus Christ. Mark and John do not. Not because it's unimportant, but that's not the primary purpose of the Gospels. The Gospels all point to a specific event. Actually, it's a specific week in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Most of the Gospels at least give one quarter of the amount of all material. Uh, The Gospel of Luke gives one third. John's one quarter actually goes into sort of a huge bulk on just a 24-hour time period within that day. So the Gospels, by design, are not focusing on Jesus' birth. They actually focus on His death. The question we need to ask then is, why? And there is sometimes an overlook, some overlooked characters in the birth narrative. It's not really part of the narrative. It happens beforehand. Um, But I've heard sermons on the shepherds. I've heard sermons on the angels. Of course, uh, we hear sermons on Joseph and Mary. And we sort of immortalize the baby in the manger and we keep him a baby, which is a danger because he's a risen king. He's not in the manger, regardless of how often you set up that nativity scene. He is a ruling, reigning king who promises to return. And he is coming back. And people will be just as busy living life as they were during the days when he first arrived. We call that the first advent. Two of our four Gospels, Matthew and Luke, do record Christ's, this big word, incarnation. And all that means is that God took on humanity. He took on flesh. He was not that before, but He took on humanity for a reason. Why? 
And the reason is that God, being eternal, and who has life in Himself, He's self-sustaining, He cannot die. Therefore, He must take on humanity because flesh can die. But even in that, Jesus said He had to lay His life down. He said, nobody takes it from me. Yes, the Romans sort of carried it out and the Jews cried out, crucify Him. But Jesus says, nobody takes my life from me. But I lay it down for the sheep. That's why God was incarnated. He took on flesh. He took on humanity so that He could die. That's what Paul, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15. He said, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And how did He do that? He did that by dying. With that, however, it's important to validate that Jesus was who Matthew presents Him to be. He is the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. This is what, how the book opens up. It's really not a very you know, interesting introduction. It's actually quite dry. Look at it. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. There's this huge list of names that goes on verse after verse after verse. And what Matthew is doing is opening his gospel account. Gospel means good news. Now, gospel is a genre, so it's capital G. This is Matthew's account of the gospel. And he starts by listing Jesus' ancestors. Right? That's not an interesting introduction to the plot, is it? But there's more displayed in what appears to be a dry beginning to a great story. In literary terms, this is what Matthew is doing. He is connecting his plot with the broader plot of Israel's history. He is placing Jesus within the context of David and Abraham. This is an entire redemptive history of which Jesus is the grand narrative. That's what Matthew wants us to get. Jesus is not just another isolated character in a disconnected narrative, as some have called him. He is the meta narrative. He is the big idea of the whole story. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is what Matthew just did. He is trying to establish Jesus' kingship. By giving him, as, as some have said, a royal pedigree, attaching him as a true heir of David, and a racial pedigree, attaching him to the true heirship and lineage of Abraham. King David, Patriarch Abraham. Jesus is the heir of David who can rightly sit on Israel's throne. He is the heir of Abraham who can effectively transfer God's promises and blessing to his people. Look at some of the names in Matthew's genealogy. Judah, Ruth, David, Uzziah, Hezekiah, Josiah. That would immediately evoke in Matthew's readers uh, the stories they had learned from childhood. These stories throughout the Old Testament about this promised coming rescuer deliverer. Here's another thing about genealogies. We don't, we don't really rest on them much. We don't count them as of much importance. But genealogies provided family honor and inheritance rights. 
But what you're going to notice in a second is that this genealogy is not sanitized. What I mean by that, it's not, this is not a redo of history. They're actually going to put forward some pretty sordid details that happened in Israel's history. Why do that when you're introducing the King of Kings? Well, you do that to remind people the character of the coming King. That our hope is not in a perfect history. Our hope is not being perfect Christians. Our hope is in really nothing that has transpired, not even in our family history, our inheritance rights, where we're at now. Our hope is in an individual who already in his birth is identifying with some pretty crooked history. These are unwholesome episodes, but they all point us to Jesus Christ. What Matthew is saying is this. I mean, we're going to look at a few of these names. The gospel, the good news, is for all people. It's for Jews and Gentiles. It's for male and female. It's for sinners. Matthew is presenting Jesus as the King of grace to the entire world. I want us to notice five women that make it in the genealogy. This is probably Matthew's most notable break from custom. The introduction of five women, I want you to hear this carefully, is something that was unusual and unnecessary in Jewish genealogies. Now, that is not a loaded gender preference statement. That is simply reality in light of the law and culture of the day. Genealogies typically only included men. So, for Matthew to include women, what does that naturally do? It really just makes them highlight, right? In the genealogy, it makes them stand off the page. I think these women have a unique way of presenting Jesus as the King of grace. That Jesus arrived to be the Savior of all kinds of people. You know, you're one of those kinds of people. You're in all kinds of people. We have quite the variety in here this morning. Quite the diversity. Some of us have fairly clean histories. Some of our stories include some pretty sordid details. Some of those details even we've brought into our story, haven't we? First, look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. Tamar is mentioned. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. You remember who Tamar is? I mean, if, if, you, if you're not accustomed to reading the Old Testament, this is where all these stories are found. These narratives are found. Tamar is the Canaanite daughter-in-law of Judah. Maybe Judah stands out a little more. One of the twelve tribes of Israel is named after Tamar's father-in-law, Judah. God had taken the lives of Tamar's husband and her husband's oldest brother because of their wickedness. This story is found in Genesis 38. Judah had promised the young, childless Tamar that his third son, her brother-in-law, and this was the duty of brother-in-laws in those days, would become her husband to raise up children. Judah, one of the patriarchs, failed to keep his promises. Tamar reacted by disguising herself as a prostitute and sat along the road to Timnah, when Judah and his friend traveled to the city. Judah asked to be with her and promised to give her a young goat 
for payment. He had no idea it was his daughter-in-law. She asks for a pledge and he left her with his signet, a cord, and a staff. Let me pick up the reading in Genesis 38, verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. It's so easy to judge, isn't it? It's so easy to invoke the law on other people. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. Notice what she says. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. From that illicit union were born twin sons, Perez, who you already saw in Matthew chapter 1, and Zerah. Together, they both are added into the messianic line of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. A sordid story in Israel's history. Jesus is the King of grace to those who don't deserve grace. Merry Christmas. What about Rahab? She's a little more familiar to us than Tamar. Look at chapter 1, verse 5 of Matthew. And Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Rahab is the notoriously known inhabitant of Jericho who had a house on the wall. And she protected two Israelite men that Joshua had sent in to spy out the city. Rahab, like Tamar, was guilty of immorality, but there's a difference. Tamar's context of desperation is different than Rahab making a profession of it. The Scripture states in Joshua 6, verse 17, And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction only, and it doesn't hide this fact, folks, only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. God not only spared her life, but the life of her family. And then she becomes the mother of the godly Boaz, which means she was David's great-grandmother. Also in the messianic line of Jesus Christ. Jesus again showing to Rahab, the prostitute, as the Bible calls her, grace to someone who doesn't deserve grace. What about Ruth? There's an entire book in the Bible named after her. It's the book of Ruth. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. This makes her Ruth, David's grandmother. Like Tamar and Rahab, Ruth was a Gentile. Here you have Gentiles added into this genealogy of a Jewish king. And just, just a side note, this is, this is actually beautiful what Matthew is doing uh, he is actually showing to you that, that in God's promises and plan, all along, He has included Gentiles. By the way, unless you're, unless you're fully Jewish in here this morning, you are a Gentile. You have been included from the very beginning in God's promises and plan. Ruth's people were the pagan Moabites. Ruth was a Moabite. 
the product of the incestuous relations of Lot with his two unmarried daughters. The child produced by Lot's union with his oldest daughter was a son named Moab, from which we get the people, the Moabites. Though Ruth was a Moabite and a former pagan possessing no right to marry an Israelite, God's grace not only brought Ruth into the family of Israel, but later through Boaz into the Messianic line. Jesus is the King of grace to those who don't deserve grace. The fourth woman, Bathsheba. Look at chapter 1, verse 6 in Matthew. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't name her formally, but look what it does do. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Did you feel that? The awkwardness? She's not identified by name. It's as if God still sees that covenant union between Uriah and Bathsheba this covenant relationship of marriage that is so serious in God's eyes. And the son produced by David's illegitimate relationship with Bathsheba died in infancy. You remember that story. The next son born to them between Bathsheba and David was Solomon, successor to David's throne, and the continuer of the Messianic line. This is what strikes me about this. Even in the midst of selfish choices... In unbridled lust, God's grace overshadows those things. Jesus is the King of grace to those who don't deserve grace. You know, these aren't just a list of names when you start to read through them. This is a living illustration of the character of the coming King, who, as Matthew will say nine chapters later, he says this, Jesus did not come to call the righteous but sinners. That's the character of the coming King, the Lord Jesus. Notice one more detail in the genealogy. Look at verse 12 of Matthew chapter 1. Every man is designated as being from his father. Every man that is except one man. Let's look at this. Look at verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad. And Abiad, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliad. And Eliad, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Methan. And Methan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph. And so the pattern, were you tracking with all that? So, so the pattern should be what? And Joseph, the father of Jesus. Right? But it doesn't. The pattern breaks on purpose. Just like he's added women in the genealogy. Now the pattern breaks and it doesn't say that. And that's because Jesus was born by a miraculous virgin conception indicating God had to take the initiative to save us. Look at what it does say. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of who? Mary. Of whom? Mary. Of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. Now, with that in place, these beautiful details of God's incredible grace to those who don't deserve grace, 
Now Matthew chooses to launch into his narrative and it is interesting that he, he, he uses in this narrative a young couple. Look at verse 18 of, of Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of... Okay, with that in place, with that established, okay, he's the heir of royalty. He's the heir of Israel's throne. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This is interesting what Matthew does, because this is all part of the Gospel as well. Matthew portrays a couple who, far from being immoral before marriage, modeled sexual restraint. A woman becoming pregnant is not uncommon. However, if that woman became pregnant before marriage, there is either some explaining to do or some very strong false perceptions to be endured. How many people do you think in Joseph's and Mary's village, how many do you think had the entire story? Very few. During what was likely the most difficult point in Mary's life, her betrothed, Joseph, was intending to divorce her. Look at verse 19. Before I read the verse, I want you to notice that Joseph models the principle of justice that is tempered by mercy. Tempered by compassion. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Before this happened, listen to Mary's response. I'll just read it in Luke chapter 1. The angel answered Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, I want you to note her words. Because in her community, in her village, at her synagogue, she would endure this for her whole life. But she said this, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I am the servant of the Lord. Behold, let it be according to me according to your word. With all the misunderstanding, pain, distress, disappointment, the rejection of her own son, the murder of her own son, she says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Notice what that meant for Mary to actually follow the Lord with this humility. I am guessing that when a woman is pregnant, perhaps the farthest thing from her mind is a long road trip. Luke chapter 2, a decree goes out from Caesar Augustus that all the... Right, it's so familiar. A lot of you on Tuesday morning will open and before any gifts are read, you will read the account in Luke chapter 2. And it reads so smoothly because it is a cherished Christmas text. But now think what this means for this young couple. That all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee 
from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Another uncomfortable detail. Then, an angel, sometime after, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. North Africa is next on the itinerary. And you know when they begin their travels? At night. Do you know why? Because Herod is executing a slaughter of all male children two years old and under in a fulfillment of what Jeremiah prophesied. And probably in the midst of that kind of darkness and grief, you have this young family going south to Egypt. Why? And I love, all Matthew says is this, so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Or that it would be fulfilled as the prophets had said. But remember what Mary said. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I would think she'd want to go back home with a newborn. I would think she'd want to be with family. I would think she'd want to go to that familiar synagogue where she grew up worshiping. And unless she's moving around, they're hiding a child from a murderous king because she said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to to your word. But don't miss, we're going to go back to Matthew. Look at Matthew verse 20. Don't miss how God was at work to do what Mary could not do in preserving the Christ child. But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Do you know that God is at work in our waiting and our wondering and our wounds and our weariness? And you might not know how long that's going to be, but this is part of the Christmas story. And God is at work in ways we have no idea of what He is doing or how He will do it. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And now again, all these signs point back to the Christ child. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Here you have the mission revealed in Jesus' name. And if you keep reading in Matthew, we're not going to get there today. But you have wise men from the east traveling to Jerusalem to find this king to what? To worship him. You have Herod. Insecure about the birth of a baby. You have the wise men showing up at the house. And the child is there with Mary. And they bow down and worship who? The child. And they present gifts to who? The child. He is the object of worship. Why? Because only Jesus Christ can save people from their sin. Mary's own words in Luke chapter 1 portray her piety in the midst of all this. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. 
And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. Here you have this young girl. Most, most Jewish girls were married around 12 to 14 years old. Some were over 20. but It would not have been uncommon for her to be that young. Not from a family of means. Seemingly overlooked. She says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. These five women are not just casual additions in Jesus' ancestry. They display the character of the King Jesus. Remember what the text said? Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. With us in our brokenness in our sin, in our shame, in our failures, in our guilt. Jesus is the fully human one who saves His people from their sins. And how did He do that? By willingly laying down His life and dying on a cross as a sin sacrifice for the penalty we should have paid. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, of all the gifts that might already be under your tree, The gift of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. His grace. A promised rescuer deliverer deliverer arrived into the midst of our unkept promises. Judas promised to Tamar. Amidst deception, Tamar's dressing as a prostitute. Amidst our self-righteous law-keeping, Judas saying to Tamar about Tamar that she should be burned. Amidst prostitution, Rahab. Amidst the product of sordid relationships, Ruth and the Moabites. Amidst adultery and murder, David. Amidst the divine miracle of a young woman carrying the Son of God in her womb so that as a human, he could die as a sacrifice. Let me just read three more verses. The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We are all sinners. That's what Scripture says. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Then how in the world can a, can a relationship like that be restored? The Scripture is very clear in the Old and the New Testament. It is by faith. By faith, in a rescuer-deliverer promised 
by faith in that promised rescuer-deliverer being born and ultimately dying to pay for the penalty of our sins. No wonder that at Christ's birth in Luke chapter 2 it says this, Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Savior is the good news. It's the Gospel. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're like, I don't deserve this. You've got Matthew's genealogy to say the exact same thing. No, we don't. At the same time, this child who was born named Jesus, God with us, God's Son, to rescue us, to deliver us, to forgive us, to reconcile us. That's the good news. And those women also point to His character as the King of grace. Do you believe this? A lot of people that are in a mad hurry about the holidays right now. A lot of unhappy people. A lot of discontent people. Because they still rush by the greatest gift ever given to human humanity. And that is Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. For if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. John 3.16 is very familiar. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not what? Perish, but have everlasting life. For He was not sent into the world, John 3.17, to condemn the world. You know why? We were already condemned. In Genesis 3, the curse of sin. We're under the curse. So, Jesus was sent to be a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world. We're already condemned. But He came to save you. Do you believe that? That's the Gospel. That's the Christmas story. That's the greatest story in the world. Let's pray.